0: Hello, and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 15th of April. In today's podcast, Dr. Nick Wood will present an update on the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine, looking at safety issues and other developments.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Associate Professor Nick Wood from the National Center for Immunization Research and Surveillance, and this is the Health Ed immunization update for COVID vaccines. In today's talk, we'll have a look at the um, current advice for COVID-19 vaccines, run you through some of the issues with thrombosis and thrombocytopenia that have emerged recently, talk a little bit about allergic reactions and what we know from our current OSVAC safety data. Um, So the first thing to say is that COVID still exists around the world. Although Australia is in a very good position, you can see from this figure here that around the world, particularly in parts of Central and Southern America, there's still an enormous burden of COVID um, across the the globe. Australia has had two waves, and as I mentioned before, we're in a very good position at the moment, with very few cases in the community. Uh, The other thing to say is that we've now given around the world um, over 330 million doses. Um, Australia has, as of yesterday, um, given about 1.1 million doses, um, and so there is certainly an enormous amount of vaccines being given. Um, The key goals of the vaccine program are to really reduce severe illness and death and disease transmission. Um, The most important ones are to stop people dying and to end up in hospital. And so how well we do this really depends on three factors. The supply of the vaccines, which we'll talk a little bit about, the characteristics of the vaccines and their safety and the local epidemiology. Vaccination is strongly encouraged but not mandatory. Um, Though, as you've heard in in recently, there has need to be a recalibration of our national um, rollout strategy. This was the original plan of Phase 1a and Phase 1b, which was targeting those most at risk of getting the disease and also those most at risk of dying from the disease. And hence there was an idea to make sure that we vaccinated our aged and disability care facilities as well as those that working in the um, Quarantine Border Force and healthcare workers at high risk. Um, In in recent days there has been a need to um, change this uh, because of an issue with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which I'll talk about. And what this has meant is updated consent forms, which are all available on the Commonwealth Government website. But uh, the most important bit here is that it's circled in the box Uh, which says that there are two brands of vaccines in Australia, both of which are effective and safe. However, for those under the age of 50, uh, the preferred brand to use is the community Pfizer vaccine. So the consent form has been updated, and you can see down at the bottom there, again in the box, that relevant for the AstraZeneca vaccine is three, three key questions that you need to ask patients. That is, have you had a history of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis? Have you had a history of the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and are you under the age of 50? Um, people will probably not know or may not know if they've had those heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or CVST, um, the central venous sinus thrombosis. But, so it may require a little bit of digging around by yourself um, or the practice to find out more specifics about the diagnosis of that person um, CVST is certainly a radiological diagnosis and so if someone says to you, yeah I had a clot in my head, they said it was a thrombosis but I'm not exactly sure where it was. If it's a severe like CVST, there's no doubt they would have had to go to hospital and had a CT of their head. And so digging around to actually get the discharge summary or the CT report will be, be important. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the venous thrombotic events, or has a range of names now. There's thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, which is TTS. There's VIPIT, which is vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia. Um, but in general, what it, the, most, the critical features of this are that people experience thrombosis and thrombocytopenia. And so what we know naturally as um, mentioned in previous talks is that clots do occur um, around about 17,000 cases annually in Australia. And these are clots like DVT, deep venous thrombosis in the leg, um, which can occasionally lead to pulmonary emboli. Um, the th- the um, events that we have had in Australia has so far been one reported, um, a case in Victoria. Um, And so what's happened across the world and in Australia is that there may well be a plausible link between the um, AstraZeneca vaccine and these thrombotic events. It's an idiosyncratic reaction and we don't exactly know why uh, people get get this particular event. Um, Two reports appeared over the weekend in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is the titles of them here, and these are case reports from the, the UK. Um, the bottom one is, is in from Germany. Um, and, and the summary in, the, in the one of those papers, particularly the bottom paper, was that the vaccination with the Chadox vaccine, that's the AstraZeneca vaccine, can rarely result in an immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. And this is due to platelet-activating um, antibodies against this PF4. And it looks very similar to the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. What we don't know is why some people um, get it and and, and many don't. Um, The estimated risk of this is probably in the order of one in 200,000. It's it's sort of in the order of four to six per million um, doses administered. Um, But as I said before, we don't exactly know why Um, some people get it and others don't. What this has led to is a whole range of documents that are now appearing in the EMA, and the European Medicines Authority, the British Regulator and in the TGA. Um, And in one of these papers, which is a bit hard to read possibly, but you can see um, a bit of a flowchart of what to go through. If someone does turn up um, in your clinic or in the local hospital um, in the 5 to 20 days after the vaccine, and the things that they might turn up with is a clotting, and a thrombocytopenia, um, and the thrombosis could be in many different sites. And you can go through a flowchart here. Um, Some of these stud tests are not able to be done in all environments, so my advice would be to discuss with your um, local haematologist. And in terms of the haematologist, the um, Haematological Society of Australia and New Zealand has a very useful website and you can go and have a look at the THANZ website. They've got lots of resources there available. Um, The key things are this, and this is um, their sort of um, uh, statement, the haematological statement, And, and you can see here that under the question of whom or when should I suspect this VIPIT, which is this thrombosis and thrombocytopenia, it really is those that have had um, onset in that 4 to 20 days after the first dose of the vaccine. The cases that have been reported so far are certainly thrombotic and they're usually venous thrombotic um, and they have been in the central venous sinus but then also in other sites such as the splenic area in the abdomen. They have a thrombocytopenia, um, usually less than 100 um, and it changes um, over time. They have a very high D-dimer and often two or four times the upper limit of normal and they don't respond to standard anticoagulants and there are some response to um, IVIG. So I think if you see someone that turns in up in your clinic in that timeframe after the first dose, um, they, they could be in, you know, extremely sick and therefore need to go to the hospital where they will have this assessment done. Um, so that's the sort of flowchart from the um, haematologist. They also have a, um, a form that the, on, that, on that website that you can request uh, to further investigate these specific cases and have information on that site and on that form about where to send the samples to. So it is a rare risk um, and this gets us to the next issue of what is the risk and benefit equation. Um, And as you know, they have, the Australian government has messaged that they would prefer the uh, Pfizer vaccine for use in the under-50s. This is a a paper that came out of the University of Cambridge in the UK, and what they did is they tried to compare the benefits and the risk according to the risk of um, the disease or of coronavirus disease. And you can see here that um, when, when there's a low exposure risk, which is an incidence of about two Cases of COVID per hundred thousand, um, that there is a definite sort of um, increasing risk of, of disease and benefits from vaccinating in, in over fifties, um, over forties. Um, but when in the UK, when you get down to the thirty below, the potential harm from the the vaccine of this rare risk um, compared to the potential risk of going to ICU with disease is sort of on in ballpark in the in the ball, line park of Area. and so the UK has decided to restrict the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine to the over 50s. Other European countries have gone with 60 um, or 55 and Australia has chosen the, the cutoff of 50 and this is very much based on the, what we know from the cases that have been reported so far of this thrombosis and thrombocytopenia nearly all were under the age of 60. Um, so the take home messages for this um, AstraZeneca so far and as I mentioned, the change or the, the space is, is rapidly changing. Is that we do prefer the Pfizer vaccine for under 50s? Now that brings up the inevitable question of how available and, and easy it is to get this vaccine. Um, the government has secured more doses of the Pfizer vaccine, but they we understand that they won't be available or for use until much later in the year. Um, for those that are under the age of 50, um, I think there is a, a discussion to be had about their individual risk benefit. Um, At the moment, the AZ vaccine is not contraindicated, um, but Pfizer is the preferred vaccine. So I think if you explain to people that this is a rare but very severe event, in the order of one per 200,000 doses, and it has only been reported after dose one, um, then then people can sort of be fully informed um, to what we know at, at this point. So in those over the age of 50 to 6 and those in those age 50 to 60, we're getting lots of questions about them. Um, at at the moment, if they um, if they've got no contraindications, such as no past history of CVST or heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, um, then the current advice is to proceed. Um, um, lots of questions about people saying I've had clots in the past. Um, Now, certainly if they're in acquired clot, for example, the very common DVT after a leg or hip surgery, and the current recommendation is that it is safe to proceed. If people have a more severe thrombotic tendency or disorder, such as a factor V Leiden deficiency or protein CRS or or other sorts of um, inherited type um, um, thrombotic disorders, Uh, TARGI is currently generating advice to answer these specific questions and this will be released in the next week or so. I think in the meantime you could um, discuss or the patient could discuss their individual situation with the haematologist that's looking after them. In the, the small case reports that I showed you earlier, there was one case of a person in that case report who did have a factor V Leiden deficiency. And there was also a couple of uh, women in the, in the previous reports as well who were on the oral contraceptive pill, but in general, um, I think the, the the as I said is a rapidly moving space. And in the, in the next week or two, we will have some updated advice um, to answer a lot of the questions about those who have had previous clots in the past. Um, if those lots of other questions we're getting is it what if I've already had one dose of AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, As mentioned, all the clotting um, stories have happened after the first dose and therefore if if they've had dose one and had no reactions then it is very safe and recommended to continue with dose two. Other questions we're being asked are should I get a different vaccine for dose two? At the moment the advice on that is no. Um, There is no studies that have shown the, the safety or the efficacy of a mixed vaccine schedule. And so, if you've had uh, dose one and you're under 50 of AstraZeneca, um, my advice would be to proceed with dose two of that vaccine. There are some mixed vaccine schedules which are underway in the UK. Um, So, the the thrombotic um, thrombocytopenia syndrome has certainly created a lot of confusion and and havoc to our vaccine rollout. There will be lots of information coming out in the next week or so. have a look on the Commonwealth Government um, website for updated ATAGI advice and also the THANZ website as well. Um, so I'm just going to pivot now to the allergic reaction story after COVID-19 vaccines. This is another area that we are getting a few questions. And to direct you to the ASKIA website um, where there's lots of information there, a very good FAQ developed by the Clinical Society for, of ASKIA. Um, and the, what uh, we know so far, and what's continued, is that you've, you should not get a COVID-19 vaccine if you've had an anaphylaxis to a previous dose of the vaccine, um, and anaphylaxis to a component of the vaccine, such as PEG or polysorbide 80. And um, the estimated anaphylaxis rates are in this order. So the, the Pfizer one is somewhere in the, the range of um, two to five per million doses. Moderna, which is not the vaccine that we're using in Australia, is a little bit less than around about 3.8 per million doses. Um, The AstraZeneca reaction um, anaphylactic rate is probably um, in the order of one to two per million. Um, So um, I, I think I mentioned this one before. And so what's really important is that you as GPs at the front line, Um, At the time that the person gets the vaccine, what we really need is the collection of the enough and the right clinical data. Um, So this is important because it really will enable us to understand, is it a true anaphylaxis case? And by doing that, we can then understand the safety for the second dose. Um, So the clinical observations at the time or within that sort of 10, 15 minutes are critical um, and so really encourage everyone, if they do see a person that they think might be having an allergic reaction, to make a very detailed um, record of what, of what they're sort of seeing and what the person has experienced. And think of it really in, in three key areas, the dermatologic system. Um, so look for things like urticaria, pruritus, angioedema. For cardiovascular attempt to document hypotension tachycardia for respiratory Make note of whether there's wheeze or stride or, or any upper airway swelling or respiratory distress or desaturations. Um, what we're getting is reports coming in to our immunisation service where we don't really have enough information to make a true determination of whether this is an anaphylactic case or not. And that puts us in a difficult position as to know whether or not we're safe to give the second dose. Um, the Brighton Collaboration has published in, in this particular um, document here a whole range of criteria to try and look at the um, risk or the, the, to determine if it is a true case of anaphylaxis. Um, and as I mentioned, they look at dermatologic, cardiovascular and respiratory. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but, but I think what's important is that you when you see them, um, Uh, Try and think of it in these three boxes and make a detailed note if you can because that will enable us to um, determine whether it really is an anaphylactic reaction. What we're seeing and what is being reported is possibly not an allergic reaction but more an anxiety or a stress-type response. And so it's really important that we get this detailed information to put a person into an anxiety or stress-type story versus an allergic reaction What we're being reported is lots of people saying that they've got some uh, tickling in their throat and they're getting a bit anxious, they're starting to hyperventilate, they're getting flushed across the top of their, their chest and so it looks like they are having a reaction but it could well be and possibly more likely to be an anxiety and stress event than a true allergic reaction. And what's happening is these people are getting given adrenaline and then um, in some cases responding, um, possibly because they've been told they've had the uh, medicine for their allergic reaction. Um, and so it does make it quite difficult when they come up for, the, for dose two. Um, so I just want to leave you with, with that um, concept that it's important if you can to get as much clinical detail. Um, and then just to finish off with, I just want to show you the um, OSVAC safety data And and why this is useful is that this is all available on the Ausvec Safety website. Um, We can see there the the link to it. Um, This is updated uh, weekly on a Wednesday. So this is last week's data. Um, And you can see that we've uh, got over 165,000 people who have responded to the surveys. Um, And what we're looking at, the day three survey responses here to both Community and AstraZeneca. And all this data uh, goes up to the TGA to complement their uh, passive surveillance reports. And and what I think in practice is possibly quite useful is if you show to people in your clinic um, these particular graphs, which I'll show in the next few slides. Um, So this is the responses uh, to to the day three survey for the Pfizer community vaccine. And you can see about one in three people are reporting injection site pain, um, and then it tails away to um, joint aches and chills being, being less common. Um, now, that's a slightly different story for the Pfizer dose two, um, and you can see here that it bumps up to, after dose two, people ex- um, experiencing fatigue, injection site pain, muscle aches, headache, in the, in the order of you know three to four out of 10 people. Um, Chills are around about one in four people, and joint aches about one in five, and fever again about one in five. So, so it's quite common that they um, experience these sorts of things. Um, and then for AstraZeneca, which is the the you know going to be delivered or continue to be delivered in in the GP environment, um, this is the responses to dose one, and you again can see that it's sort of in the order of four to five in ten people who are experiencing in that first three days some fatigue, headache, muscle aches, and injection site pain. Um, So I think it's really important that people um, can see this um, and therefore when they do get the vaccine and then in the next 12 to 24 hours after that vaccine, say, oh yes, I do feel a bit achy, then that's an expected anticipated sort of reaction. Um, So, uh, and the message for those people when they do experience that is to, to rest up um, take some um, antipyretics uh, for pain or fever if, if they need to, and, and drink plenty of fluids. Um, we also are seeing that the um, absenteeism rate um, after these Pfizer dose 2 and the AstraZeneca dose 1 is around about 1 in 4 um, to 1 in 5 people taking some time off from their normal work or duties in the day after that vaccine. Um, When we survey these people again at day eight, um, the majority of them, more than 90%, have their symptoms have recovered. So it is certainly something that happens in the first 12 to 24 hours, um, and and then it goes away and lasts about a day or so. Um, So it's very similar to a a flu-like illness, which the um, WHO Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety um, has reported. Um, So I think if you show those particular slides to people, then they'll understand. Um, And this is just some real-world data from the UK, where they've given um, many millions of doses. And you can see here that um, this is um, Pfizer dose 1 and dose 2 in in those graphs there. Again, similar to our data, much more common to have side effects after dose 2. And AstraZeneca dose 1, you can see, um, again, it's all happening in the first few days. Um, Importantly, if people um, do experience these things like fever, headache and fatigue um, then uh, they don't need to get a COVID testing. Um, However, if they do, as we go into winter, have headache, fatigue, etc. plus respiratory symptoms like runny nose, cough, sore throat, loss of taste, etc. These are unlikely to be caused by the vaccine and therefore recommendation for testing for COVID would be important. If we get an outbreak in the community again, and the testing for threshold may well be changed. Um, we don't recogni- uh, rec- recommend that you do a screening blood test to look for antibodies to uh, the COVID vaccine to inform whether or not to get the vaccine. If someone has been diagnosed with COVID disease, um, then what they should do is um, certainly get uh, the vaccine, and, but they could defer that for six months after their diagnosis. Um, and Just to finish off with a little bit, um, with flu and uh, COVID vaccines as we go into the flu season, we don't recommend co-administration. We do recommend that there be a 14-day interval between the flu and the COVID vaccine. Um, And there's no requirement on the order of the vaccine. So you can give flu first, then COVID, or you can reverse it the other way around. if inadvertently someone has been given the flu vaccine within that 14-day interval, um, then we, we don't suggest that you need to repeat the COVID or the flu vaccine, um, but it be but uh, you can carry on in that respect. Um, ATAGI will be has updated information as shown in, in the link here. Um, and then the, the next thing to say or to update you is, as of a few um, last week, uh, the, um, there have been some changes to the storage for the community vaccine. Um, they've liberalised uh, how well it, how the, the freezing conditions at which it can be stored, and it can now be stored in um, domestic uh, freezers um, for up to for up to two two weeks. Um, now, whether or not this means that they can now start to roll out the Pfizer vaccine in the GP setting, uh, time will tell. Um, As you know, it's it's been restricted to the hubs in the hospitals or in community clinics, but it might well start to roll out into the GPs if if they're able to liberalise the um, cold chain storage requirements even further. Um, So uh, the take-home messages are um, informed consent is important, particularly for the under-50s. I think it's really or for anyone, but um, for under-50s there's a focus on the... um, the under-50s under, um, under 50s in the thrombotic and thrombocytopenic um, discussion. Um, you can explain the side effects um, with OSVAC safety um, as shown here, show them the graphs. Um, Pfizer is recommended for the under-50s, um, uh, but if you have had a past history of CVST or heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, it is a contraindication. Um, Novavax is, uh, Australia has purchased the Novavax vaccine, which will be um, likely or planned to um, arrive later this year. Um, It is undergoing rolling TGA determination, but it's important to note that the phase three trial results have not yet been published. And so we're not sure about when that will be published and how available the vaccine will be. it's a rapidly moving space. And so uh, keep your eyes on target advice and um, outputs coming through the College of GPs and the primary healthcare networks. Um, likely to be a lot of information in the next two weeks. And so there's a whole lot of information there and in the different links. And um, uh, that's it from me. So thank you.
0: Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience it's free you get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice wherever you choose to be Register now at healthed.com.au.